We come to the Gospel of St. John in chapter 8. And it's absolutely a fascinating story. And we, what we have in the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1, is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And she gets dragged through the streets to where Jesus is. And their intention is to follow the law. Because the law says, anyone caught in adultery gets what? Stone. Stone. Right. And so they do this. As we look at this for what it truly is, we listen to it from the Father's teachings, which we will. What we're going to find is that ultimately this is a story. Number one, about the long-suffering, loving-kindness the mercy of God being extended. And remember that word mercy, loving kindness. You heard me said it, uh, teach it before. That Hebrew word hesed. Of course, this isn't written in Hebrew, but it's still what it's describing to us. That Hebrew word hesed, which basically means this. Uh, we go to God. We go before Him. And we deserve nothing good from His hands. We go before Him and we cry out for mercy, a mercy that we can't deserve, a mercy that we could never earn. And rather than giving us exactly what we deserve, which is at least nothing or at worst, condemnation, God turns it around and He gives us everything that He is. That is the mercy of God. That is the loving kindness the long-suffering of God that He has for us, that He is. Uh, He has it because He is it. Okay? And we're going to see that play out here, but I'm going to tell you something else this story is. This story is an absolute picture of one of the major ministries that our Lord Jesus Christ came to do, and that is to put away our accusers. To put away our accusers. We'll talk about that in this lesson. I don't want to go further right now. But it's a show of His mercy and it is His action and ministry to put away all that would stand to accuse us. Okay? So, if you'll allow me, I will read you the story and then we'll get into it. I begin in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And this is an important line. This they said, testing him. That they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him uh, him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. 
When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. First thing that I want us to notice. The scribes and the Pharisees, you know this. Many times in the gospel, we see them trying to trip Jesus up in his teaching and in his words for one reason and one reason only. They feared him. They feared the gathering that he was getting by his teachings and his miracles and all that he was doing. So they feared him. And in order to get him out of the picture to eliminate the source of their fear, they looked to trip him up so they could find his words saying something with which they could accuse him, convict him, deal done. You see? They do this many times. Their question to him In this case, another case where they are simply trying to trip up our Lord Jesus Christ. Their question to him was a trick question designed to bring about an accusation. So they could bring him before the spiritual leaders and sentence him. And so they bring this woman caught in adultery before him with these words. Here's the test. Here's where they try to trip him up. Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? Let me read to you the words of St. Augustine on this question. St. Augustine taught, These deceivers had heard Jesus preach that He had come not to destroy the law but to fulfill it and to grant forgiveness of sins. So the Jews said to themselves, If he says, let her be stoned, we shall say to him, what has become of your mercy and your forgiveness of sins? Aren't you the one who says your sins are forgiven you? But if he says, let her go, we shall say, what has become of your coming to fulfill the law and not destroy it? You see, in their minds, feeble as they are, but crafty, in their minds, they think they've got him. Right? No matter what he answers, we've got him on this one. So this whole event, I want you to see this clearly. This whole event of them bringing the woman so publicly, processing her through the crowds and into the temple where Jesus was, they didn't care at all about the woman. Their heart wasn't set upon the woman, the sin, and what she deserved near as much as we have an opportunity. This woman's sin presents an opportunity for us to catch Jesus. Hmm? That's what they're doing. They saw the opportunity. And we will find that Jesus, unlike them, looks at the woman and sees a broken creation who is in need of mercy and His healing touch. You see the opposite of Christ and mankind in that moment. They use this to accuse Him, cared nothing for the woman. We're going to enact the law. Simple as that. But really, they weren't even thinking about that. Let's ask him a question he can't answer so we catch him. Jesus' heart, you'll see, is fixed upon the woman. As well as the rest of them. And Jesus, knowing perfectly the hearts of all men, he has the perfect answer, which is actually not an answer at all. He'll ask a question or make a statement. 
And the answer has perfect justice and the mercy of God within it. For we're told, but Jesus, when they came and asked the question, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I want to read to you three church fathers on Jesus writing in the ground. I think you'll find it interesting. The first one comes from St. Jerome. St. Jerome teaches, The scribes and Pharisees kept accusing her and kept earnestly pressing the case, for they wished to stone her to death according to the law. But Jesus, stooping down, began to write with his finger on the ground, The sins to be sure of those who are making the accusation, as well as perhaps the sins of all mortal beings. According to what was written in the prophet, those who depart from you shall be written in the earth. The venerable Bede, Saint Bede, he says this, When the Lord was about to give pardon to the sinful woman, he desired to write with his finger on the ground in order to point out that it was he himself who once wrote the Ten Commandments of the law on stone with his finger, as it says. That is by the action of the Holy Spirit. And it is good that the law was written upon stone since it was given to subdue the inmost hearts of hard-hearted and defiant people. Back to St. Augustine. What was signified by this indulgence? The grace of God. What was signified by that hardness? The law given on stones. This is why the Lord was writing with His finger, but now on the ground from which He could obtain crops. But anything sown on stone does not come up because it cannot put down roots. The finger of God wrote both then and now. It was by the finger of God that the law was written, and the finger of God now is the Holy Spirit for us all. So Jesus writing the sins of the people based on He is the fulfillment of the law who gave it in the very beginning. He is writing the sins of those who are present and perhaps others on the ground. And they keep and He's not answering them. He's just writing on the ground. And so they continue to ask Him, and they keep pressing Him for an answer. And so He finally stands up among them, we're told. And He says, He who is without sin, probably referring to what He'd written on the ground. He who is without sin, let him throw a stone at her first. So these foolish men try to trap our Lord Jesus Christ in His words, seeing that they could catch Him because if He, if he forgives her sin, He's abandoned the law. If He doesn't forgive her sin, He's gone against what He's been teaching all along. But instead the Lord answers in a way that brings perfect justice. The justice of God. You know, we talk about Jesus being the judge of all. You're seeing it here. In the midst of all these people, yes, a woman who is absolutely blatantly caught in the act of adultery, guilty beyond any argument. Who else was guilty in the scene? The people that accused her. The people that are accusing her are also equally guilty of various sins. He's making it an equal playing field among them all. What is he really saying? I'm showing you 
I didn't give you the law to judge. The, the law is what judges by the Holy Spirit. The perfection of the law. I am the judge who gave the law. And he writes their sins on and presents an even playing field for them all. In perfect justice, wielding the law by the Holy Spirit, writing down these sins in the ground to reveal the truth, it demonstrates his perfect justice. Let any of you not guilty of these, you throw the first stone at her who is guilty of these. Their scheme to trap Jesus and find him guilty has absolutely failed. They've been found out themselves to be guilty right along with this woman. Because we hear that then those in verse 9, then those who heard it, being convicted by what? Their conscience, it says. Was the Holy Spirit at work or not through Jesus Christ in the midst of that crowd? When you hear, they weren't just convicted by words or things that were written on the ground. Who were they convicted by through Christ? His Holy Spirit. It says they were convicted in their own conscience. And because of that, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest to the last one there, one by one, you could just hear the stones drop onto the ground. And I want you to really get what our Lord achieved in that one perfect and righteous statement when He calls them to throw the first stone if they've not sinned. Number one, He in truth and knowing all things, having perfect justice, brings to the surface not just the sins of the woman, but all of them. And those who hear, convicted in their soul, convicted in their conscience, and they acted right finally. They stopped pressing with their evil intent to accuse, and they looked inward. What were they focused on in the beginning? They were focused on two things. The sin of the woman... And let us trap Jesus to do harm to Him. But in just an instant, by the Holy Spirit working through Jesus Christ, through what He wrote on the ground, where did their gaze turn? From those two subjects into their own soul. And now they saw who they were in the eyes of He who judges all things. And so they acted rightly, finally coming to some form of humility and saying, I can't do it. And they drop their stones. But there's something else that happened here that I want us to attend to. As they dropped their stones, each one of these accusers, where did they go? They left. They are no longer present at the scene. Every one of the accusers, by the divine justice and the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ... Every one of the accusers is no longer around this woman. Our Lord Jesus Christ in His life and ministry on our behalf, my friends. This is one of the great ministries of our Lord Jesus Christ is to cast down our accuser. Why? How often, I want you to think about this. How often do you and I live out our Christianity paying more attention to the finger of the accuser, Satan, who points at us? And by the way, when Satan points out our sins and highlights them, and he does a great job at it, when Satan, with his finger, points out our sins, what comes upon us is guilt and shame. And what does shame do? 
just like with Adam and Eve, shame gets us to hide from God. Because when we live in shame, we have a sense of less worth. And when we have a sense of less worth and God calls us to Himself, which He always did just like He did Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden, when God calls, himself, calls us to Himself and we're living in shame, we do like Adam and Eve do. Because why? They had fallen to the second temptation of the accuser. So what did Jesus do? He destroyed the accuser. He threw down the authority of the accuser. He gave us victory through Him and by the power of grace by the Holy Spirit to overthrow the accuser so that just like the woman in this scene, when it really comes down to it, all there is is us in Christ who is the judge of all things. You see, the accuser, when he points our sins out and throws them in our face and keeps them hanging there so we don't lose focus of it, we go into shame, our accuser's work is done. But Jesus' finger equally points out our sins. But the result when we listen to Christ as He navigates our soul, knowing us so well... When He points out our sin, it is to draw us where? Towards Him. Because who is He? He is the God who extends divine mercy beyond what we could ever deserve. He restores our worth, doesn't diminish it by the pointing out of our sin. You see the difference? This is who He is in His nature. I really want you to visit that question in your lives. When you have your sin revealed to you, how do you tend to live? How do you tend to deal with that? When it's revealed to you. When it's, and I'm not saying by who. When our sin is before us, there are two options. We can look in the mirror and acknowledge it. But what do we do with it? In other words, is it leading us to a sense of condemnation? Do we feel when we see our sin, sometimes or all the time? What I'm trying to do is place some discernment in your soul here, so follow me. When our sin is before us, do we, do we, the person that we are, feel condemned, condemnation? Do we feel such an incredible heap of guilt that shame comes upon us and we tend to shrink away from God? Or, when our sin is placed before us, are we like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? who saw his sin, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips because I've seen God in perfection. But what did Isaiah do? He fell down and cried out and repented before God. And what did God do to the one who was penitent? He take the angel takes the coal from the altar, the eternal altar, and he touches the very weakness of, of, of Isaiah. It says he touched his lips. What did he confess? I'm a man of unclean lips. 
He touched his lips and he released him from the condemnation and the guilt of his sin and restored him. You see the difference? If when you take a look at your sin and you find yourself either shrinking away from God or feeling an incredible guilt, and I'm not talking about godly sorrow, but that which would cause us to shrink away from God, you are responding to your accuser. That is where you recognize who is at work in my life in this moment. We're called to test the spirits. I'm telling you to test the spirits with this. But if when you have revealed to you your sin and you are sorrowful in your heart for what you see and you go to God, whether it's in your home, whether it's at Mass, whether it's in confession, whether it's in the prayer services, you go before God saying, you're right. And this grieves me. You will experience what this woman in a minute will experience. The release of God and the grace to go and sin no more. And this is where we come to the next part and the final part of this. So now everyone has dropped their stones one by one. They are gone. So now all you have present are the one who sinned and the one who is sinless. You've got the woman caught in adultery and our Lord Jesus Christ together in the scene. And it says in verse 10, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned... Listen to his words. Has no one condemned you? And she responds, she doesn't say, I'm sinless. She doesn't try to play as if she's not caught. Everything's before her. She answers, no one, Lord. There are are no accusers. No one here is further condemning me. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Because Christ did not come into the world to bring condemnation. Christ came into the world to overthrow the one who does and bring release to the captive. To bring mercy where it could never be earned. To give grace for people to be transformed like Him, holy and righteous, and live that kind of life. Which is why Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but He doesn't leave it there. He commands her. This is a command. Now go with what you've received. The cleansing and the mercy. Go and sin no more. And I promise you this. Our Lord Jesus Christ never commands what He doesn't grace and empower an individual to do cooperating with Him. I want to read to you... Another couple of statements from wonderful teachings from St. Augustine. St. Augustine says at this point in the scripture, The two were left alone. The pitiful, that's the woman, and the Lord who gives pity. They left the woman with her great sin in the keeping of him who is without sin. 
And because she had heard, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. She most likely expected to be punished by one in whom no sin could be found. But he who had repelled her adversaries with the voice of justice lifted on her the eyes of mercy. Isn't that a precious look at Christ? From us who sin. St. Augustine also, St. Augustine also said, Neither will I condemn you. What is this, O Lord? Do you therefore favor sins? Not so evidently. Mark what follows. Go and sin no more. Therefore the Lord did also condemn... I want you to hear this really specifically. This is very good from Him. The Lord, therefore the Lord did also condemn, but condemned sins, not the sinner. Are we not told to put to death in us sin? And of course, we're not capable of that without the grace of God, but with it, yes, we are. Because the Lord condemns sin. Why does He condemn sin? What is it that brought death into the world? Sin. Yes, through humanity, but He didn't create sin. Who did He create? Us. We are beloved. Those in and outside of the ark of salvation are beloved of Christ. Because He knit them together in mother's womb and breathed life into them. And He has come for them. He condemns sin, not the sinner. For if He was a patron of sin, He would say, Neither will I condemn you. Go live as you will. Be secure in my deliverance, however much more you will sin. Let them pay attention then. Who love the gentleness in the Lord, and let them fear His truth. For the Lord is both sweet and right. You love Him because He is sweet, fear Him because He is right. Or do you despise the riches of His long-suffering and gentleness, not knowing that the forbearance of God leads you to repentance? He's quoting St. Paul that I'll read more of in a minute. The Lord is gentle. The Lord is long-suffering. The Lord is full of mercy. But the Lord is also just, and the Lord is also true. We would do well to remember that. He condemns sin and not the sinner. We love Him for the experience of His mercy. We fear Him that if we continue in sin, He is also the great judge. He commands, go and sin no more. Gives us grace to do so. We need to walk in this. That quote that uh, St. Augustine said from St. Paul was Romans chapter 2. I want to read to you a little bit more around that so that you hear the teaching of St. Paul on this. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the first Jew and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace... To everyone who works what is good, to the Jews first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. 
It's an incredible warning by the Apostle to us. A warning on the one hand to recognize that it is that very loving kindness and mercy that draws us to repentance. This is Him bringing us to Himself. And yet at the same time when He says to us, go and sin no more and graces us to do so, if we continue to wear the identity of sin throughout our lives, my friends, our souls have a problem. Our illness is still festering. Our fallenness is still at the front of our lives. We have not allowed Christ to save us by our own choice, not by His. You've heard me say so many times before, and I like to keep this before us because I really believe C.S. Lewis puts it best. In the end, there will be two. The one who says to God in response to His loving kindness, Thy will be done. And the one to whom God responds with pain, by the way, Thy will be done. I hope that you will take... I'm going to talk about one other thing in just a minute. Another way to use this scripture. But I really do hope that you will take Christ's ministry in bringing absolute destruction to the accuser in your life. Be able to discern based on how you grapple with and respond to the pointing out of the sin that is in us and is in each one of your lives. And that you'll be able to much better discern whether I am hearing the fingerprint of God by the Holy Spirit showing this, which is designed to draw me to Himself that He can give mercy and heal and grace to overcome, or the accuser that brings heaps of guilt, puts you into shame where you almost want to hide from God or any of His people. We see this over and over again. How many people does Christ lose in His church Because they are under the thumb of the accuser and have no self-worth and hide from God and His people. I can't... You know, we all say the same thing, I'm not worthy. We are all saying truth when we say, I'm not worthy. But their sense of unworthiness brings them to a false accusation. And a shame that so destroys their lives. So I pray that you'll look for that. The other thing is I pray that you'll be very, very attentive when Christ does point these things out to come to Him much more earnestly and actively to receive what you could never deserve. Because the experience of that mercy is no different than we talked about in Mass today. The experience of the Gentile Canaanite woman that came, what did it bring her to? The experience of Christ brought her to great what? Faith. Faith. So will our experience of divine mercy over and over and over again. How do you, if you're not experiencing that in our life, if we don't experience that, we've missed something, something's wrong, come talk to me, please. Because when we experience that, it is inevitable that our faith grows and our commitment to take up our cross and follow Christ and truly be a disciple grows immensely. I want to take just a moment in closing. I want to encourage you because this is, a, this is quite frankly a perfect narrative in Scripture. The St. John chapter 8 story of the adulterous woman. To take a look and how we can look at Scripture and use it prayerfully for the experience of Christ. I want to give you, let me give you an example. The fathers tell us that Scripture, just like the iconography, 
can be a window to the experience of God. We tend to treat it merely intellectual. Now, yes, it goes into our soul, but we tend to read like we would read a book. We read it, it comes in, we process it, and maybe something good happens. There's nothing wrong with that. We are intellectual creatures. But there's much more to the experience of God that can be had in Holy Scripture. I'll tell you what I have taken a number of folks through who either struggled in this particular sin or struggled with condemnation in their life. And I've walked them through how to use this scripture very prayerfully to experience Christ. Okay? And it takes a little work on your part, but it's worth it. And here's how I might say to Let's say I had someone that they, they may be struggling in, in any sexual sin or adultery or something like any, anything of that nature. I tell them, and I'm telling you as far as how to, you can use Scripture. Place yourself in the scene. Because there are a number of figures in this scene that you could place yourself as. You could place yourself as the woman who was caught in the sin. You could place yourself as those who are accusing, and they witness what Christ does. You can place yourself... Remember, this happened in the temple. These weren't the only people here. This was a crowd. You could place yourself in the crowd and watch all that happens as you read through Scripture. Because, see, you don't have to have the exact words when you do this because you know the story. Have you ever just sat back with Scripture... Let's put ourselves as the one who is the sinner, the one caught in sin. Doesn't matter what it is. If you could just be before the icons in your home or chapel or church or whatever, if you want to come, and just sit and let the story unfold where you're that person. For example, let me you ask yourself some questions. You're that sinner brought in by this mob. What is the mob intending to do to you? kill you by stoning. So what if you're that person and you've got all these accusers intending your death, your harm, what are you feeling? Fear. Scared. Fear? Guilt? Okay, shame. First, certainly at first when, they, when, she, when she was first caught, you know there was shame. Embarrassment. Embarrassment? All of these things. I'm sorry, have any of y'all ever felt these things? Fear? Regularly. <laughs> These are people. We put ourselves in the scene. So you let that well up in you. You remember times you have dealt with these kinds of emotions. You may be in them right now because of a struggle you're having in sin. And you're brought into this crowd and your back is to everyone. Isn't that a miserable thing? It's like having something over your head. You can't see what's about to happen. You don't know what's going to happen next. And you know stones are coming and that's not a fun thought. Pain is awaiting you and you don't know when somebody's going to throw the first one. And then you hear this conversation. You play it out. Your back is to everyone. You hear this conversation where these people are saying, Jesus, uh, what should we do here? The law says we are to stone her. Yes? What should we do? And you hear silence, which doesn't make you feel very good. You're still awaiting the first stone to strike your body. And then you hear Jesus say, let he who is without sin throw the first stone at her. 
And you're still expecting, like one of the fathers said, someone who can't think of a sin is going to throw it. And it doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden, what do you hear? You ever heard a stone hit the ground? It makes a sound, yes? And you're hearing boom. Boom. At first you may be wondering, was that you? You know, I mean, you're, 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 your mind's going everywhere at this point because you're at the point of possible death. And then all of a sudden you're still there, but you're still not facing anyone. And then Jesus comes over right beside you. And He asks you the question. Where is your accuser? I'm here with you. Where is your accuser? And you answer Him. There's no one here accusing me. I know I'm guilty. You get that? There's no one here accusing me. I know that I have guilt. And then you listen to Jesus speak His word over you. Neither do I accuse you. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Now, you're wrapped up. Remember this. We described it. We, at that point, we were wrapped up in guilt, shame, anxiousness, fear of death, fear of punishment, you name it. And all of a sudden, you are completely exonerated and released. No accusers are there to accuse you. You are released from your sin, given mercy you could never earn. Yes? It doesn't say she was married. True. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, if, and if she was, poor sap, right? Yeah. But no question. It's also interesting is, is the stones themselves almost like representative of sin. When you carry a when you carry a, a sin around, it's like you're carrying a stone around your back. Or very good. And when has they let those stones go? Yeah. It's almost to a certain extent, you know, they're, they're thrust to accuse. It's the whole, you know, judge a person's uh, speck in their eye versus the stone in your own. I mean, yeah. they have almost released that. Was there a connection? Like, was it intentional that this uh, lesson tied in with? Uh, uh, gospel today when the woman was saying my daughter is possessed by a demon because you almost think of a possession of a demon yeah. as being someone in, captured by sin of some way absolutely certainly, you know, certainly. You know, and it wasn't purposeful because I'm literally going chapter by chapter through John and we happened upon it on the day that we have this particular mass and that gospel but you're right to make the connection and I, and I like the idea the understanding you're going with with the stones there's no question you know there's absolutely My friends, what I hope you saw, and I only had a moment to do it, but I have done this with Scripture, and sometimes I'll take a half hour in prayer through Scripture like this, where I am able to see something I never saw before, both about myself and my relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And He will uh, impact my life in these moments. We don't just need to read Scripture as stories. We are living inscriptions of the Holy Spirit. We can take these stories, place ourselves in them, because every one of us is like this in some way. And Jesus Christ is ever constant. And we can experience Him prayerfully through Scripture to our growth, salvation, and the growth of our faith. Let's stand.